We're going to start uh, with the message this morning uh, and then do our, our more extended time in worship at the end. Um, if you want to grab a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 through um, 13, as well as uh, some other places in the, in the account of Noah and the flood. We're, we're starting in verse 5 because if, you're, if you kind of follow along with us or you've looked at the BibleInitiative.com uh, website, there's a, like a 15-minute podcast about verses 1 through 4 in Genesis chapter 6 um, on the website. It also went out just into our podcast stream if you follow that that offers some explanation uh, on those first four verses. encourage you to check that out and to listen to that. Also want to pass along that this is the week where we're going to catch up and get back to teaching on the front side of each week's reading, which means that you're going to read the book of Job over the course of this week, and tomorrow uh, we'll put out a podcast that works through the book of Job, but then next week we'll start teaching on Abraham so that when you read not this coming week, but the next week, we'll teach Abraham, then you'll read Abraham, and we'll continue that way um, for the rest of the year. So there won't be a Sunday morning sermon on the book of Job. Instead, that'll be posted on our website. It'll be posted on the BibleInitiative.com. It'll get pushed into your podcast stream. We'll try to get that to you as many ways as possible. It'll also go out uh, in the transit. So like Kurt was saying, if you are signed up on our email list and you get the transit, you should open the transit because that's where the Job message will be. So um, this morning, I want to start with uh, a quote, and it's from a devotional written by Tim Keller, and he's talking about God and God's Word, and he says this. He said, a perfect God could have nothing less than perfect communication with his people. It is we who read too hastily, skip prayer, and fail to meditate on his Word. It is we who read too hastily, skip prayer, and fail to meditate on his word. Um, Last night, my my wife and I are going through this devotional book uh, together, and so we typically read them at night before we go to bed. And I was really struck by that, that the Lord has communicated perfectly to us in his word. He's told us everything we need to know in order to pursue him, to live in relationship with him, and to live lives that model the character of Jesus Christ in the world, and we read too hastily, or we fail to read, or we skip prayer in the midst of our reading, or we fail to think about what it is that we just read. And if we would do those things, then Scripture would, uh, would come alive for us. It would be life-transforming for us because it would be in Scripture where we encounter the Lord. It would be in Scripture where we see what it is that He desires for our lives. And um, we, we're trying to do that over the course of this year. And so I'm just going to pray that the Lord would come in here this morning, and that he would speak to us while we look at his word this morning. Will you join me? God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak clearly to us. God, that we would push distractions out of our hearts and out of our minds, Lord, that we would come to your word longing to meet with you. Lord, that we would come to your word longing to learn about who you are. God, that we would allow your word to illuminate something about who we are and our need for you and our need to be saved by you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would show us exactly how holy you are. 
in exactly how just you are in your judgment of our sin, but would you also show us how merciful you are to provide a Savior for us so that we can step into a right relationship with you. God, would you show us that you have done everything for us to be saved from your judgment by your mercy for an eternal relationship with you. God, would you open that up to us in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing I want to I do this morning uh, is just talk a little bit about the story, uh, the account of Noah in general. Uh, his account lasts from Genesis uh, 6. He actually is uh, introduced in Genesis 5 in a, in a genealogy that spans from Adam down to Noah. But then we get the story of Noah's uh, life, if you will, in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. What's interesting, though, is that the account of Noah's life in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, uh, Noah's not the main character. The main character in the account of the flood, the main character in the account of Noah's life is God. In fact, the reason I can say that so confidently is because in Genesis 6, 7, 8, in the beginning of 9, there are four uh, patches of dialogue, if you will. Noah never speaks. It is God who speaks every single time. In fact, when Noah does finally talk at the end of chapter 9, it's actually in response to his own sin, not in response to what the Lord has done to save humanity from judgment. And so we read throughout the the account of Noah, and we think of Noah's ark. That's really the Lord's ark in order to save humanity from the Lord's judgment. We have a tendency at times, and I've talked about this before, to take a passage of scripture and to look at it and to ask ourselves primarily, where do I find myself here? Who am I in this account? When in reality, Scripture is telling us all about who God is and his work and at times illuminates something about who we are. Scripture all throughout illuminates the reality of our sin. It illuminates our reality uh, that we need a savior. It predominantly tells us the story of who God is, what he's done to provide for us a savior. And most often that work is done in spite of humanity, in spite of humanity's sin. And that's what we see here in the story of Noah. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is the primary character. He's the primary character in creation. He's the primary character in sparing humanity after the fall. He's the primary character in the account of the flood. He's the primary character in the remainder of the Bible. And he's the primary character in the world as it functions today. It's just that so often we want to put ourselves in that position. That's what we talked about last week, that one of the main struggles of sin is that it's glory stealing. It's that we want to put ourselves in the position that only God deserves, that he is the one who deserves the glory. He is the one that deserves the attention. And so often our sin is rooted in wanting to place ourselves in that position. When you read the story of Noah, the account of Noah's life, God jumps off the page. His work is what you walk away in awe of. And so I hope that we're able to see that this morning. We're not going to talk about the whole thing, 
I do want to say right from the outset, um, I don't think this is an allegorical account. I think there was a human being named Noah who lived in a time where humanity was amazingly sinful and that God looked at the world, wanted to bring judgment upon the world, and used Noah in order to preserve humanity. I don't think this is something that we look back on and say, oh, well, it's an allegory. Oh, well, it's just kind of a story or a legend. No, I, I think this actually happened. I believe that this actually happened. This is a real account. And so here's what it says. Verse 5, chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Throughout Scripture, the Bible makes a really big deal out of the heart. When we think of the heart, we think of emotions. That's what we talk about in America when we talk about someone's heart. But in the Bible, the heart is the center of a person. It's their desires and their intellect, their character, their feelings. It's who they are at their core. The heart is representative of what is central to a person. It includes their emotions, but it's not limited to them. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, we're told this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to them. When you read... All throughout scripture, it becomes clear that in the eyes of the Lord, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. This is why you hear people say things like, they gave their heart to Jesus. The Lord wants your heart. He wants to be the center of who you are. He wants the full of your life, of my life. He wants the full of our being, not parts of it, but all of it. Imagine standing at the altar on your wedding day and looking your spouse in the eye and just with all the love and romance that you could muster saying, I'm pledging 83% of myself to you today. (laughs) We would not ever do that. Nor would we then rattle off a list of the 17% of ourselves that we're not handing over. And yet, for some reason, we think or we live in a way that communicates that to the Lord. I'm placing my faith in you, Jesus, to save me from my sin. But here's the little list of places that I'm unwilling to turn over to you. I'll give you 83% of myself, God. And what's interesting is that at times, we live as though God should be thankful for the 83% that we gave him, that like, like we're doing him some sort of favor by doing that. 
You see, what Scripture paints for us here is that as the Lord looked out over creation, what He saw was that humanity's heart was full of sin. Full of it. It's an inherent nature that all of humanity receives from Adam and Eve. It's more than merely behavior. It expresses itself in terms of behavior, but every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. That's what we're told. It's also interesting because we're told that in verse 11 that the earth was filled with violence. God had commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers for the Lord who would live and display his glory in the earth. And instead, we're told the earth is full of something different. It's full of violence. It's full of humanity whose intent is evil all the time. And rather than the glory of the Lord being made manifest throughout his creation, thanks to the presence of humanity, what the earth is full of, thanks to the presence of humanity, is sin and violence. And it causes a reaction from God. We're told that the heart of God is full of grief. That he is grieved by the sin of humanity. We learn about who God is continually through Scripture. We certainly continue to do so in chapter 6. And what we learn here is that God's heart is pained by our sin. I think it's also important to note that God does feel emotions, which makes sense. He created us in His image. and He gave us emotions as a means by which we relate to Him and we relate to others. Being made in his image and after his likeness, we can expect him to have emotions. And scripture bears that out for us from beginning to end. God rejoices in Isaiah 62. He's grieved here. He's also grieved in Psalm 78. In Exodus 32, we're told that he burns with wrath. In Psalm 103, we're told that he pities. In Isaiah 58, we're told that he loves with an everlasting love. And if our emotions are going to match his emotions, then we need to rejoice with what is good and righteous and holy. And we need to be burdened or saddened by all that is not. And unfortunately, because of the presence of sin in our lives, that's not always the case. At times, our emotions bear the mark of sin. And so we rejoice in things that are contrary to the goodness of God. We delight in sin or in sinful attitudes. At times, we can be indifferent to sin or even indifferent to things that are good and should be worth our full delight. But the Lord is grieved by sin. He looks over his creation and he says to himself, this isn't how it's supposed to be. He literally feels pain in his heart over the sin of humanity. and To the point where we're told that he regretted creating mankind. What we see here is the emotion of someone who loves deeply. Have you ever watched a close friend or a loved one make an awful decision to the point where it caused you literal pain to watch it happen? Where they made a decision in their life or they took part in some activity or some behavior and despite your warnings, despite your best advice, They carried it out anyway, and all you could do is watch in pain while it happened. 
The Lord's regret and his grief come directly from a place of love here. And if you remember back to when we taught about creation, we said that God is unchanging. And you might read this passage and say, how can God be unchanging and yet regret at the same time? How can he be unchanging and yet make a decision to wipe out humanity? And that's a very good question. I think it's important to just talk very briefly through the theological definition of God's unchangeableness, of his immutability is the theological word. For God to be unchanging means that he's unchanging in his being, he's unchanging in his purposes, and he's unchanging in his promises. It does not mean that he doesn't act or feel differently in response to different situations. God's being is not ever going to change. Who God is at his core, what his character is, is not ever going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When he determines something, when he makes a promise or declares a purpose, that is not ever going to change. It will come to pass. But as he sees the actions and situations that play out in his creation, his emotions, his feelings, his responses to those things can change. It's part of what, God, what makes God infinite and yet personal. He's grieved here. He regrets here because humanity's heart is full of sin. And yet we get introduced to Noah. And in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, we learn that there's something about Noah that causes him to relate differently to sin. In the midst of all of the evil and the violence that's running rampant over the face of the earth, something stands out about Noah. He's righteous. He's blameless. We're told that he walked with God. But Noah's not perfect. He has a heart that longs to follow the Lord but isn't free from sin. And if you're taking notes, you can just jot down that after he gets out of the boat, in chapter 9, verses 20 to 29, we get a very clear picture of the fact that Noah is not perfect. He's not sinless. But he does have a heart that longs for the Lord, and thus he stands out. Even though he's described as righteous and blameless and walking with God, he's not free from sinful nature. But it's clear that his heart is different than the heart of every other member of humanity at the time. And so he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. He wasn't sinless and therefore earned himself some sort of special status. He had a heart that was different, and the Lord bestowed favor upon him. I want to give just a really quick devotional thought here. And it relates to sin in the life of a person who wants to follow the Lord. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you undoubtedly understand that that didn't somehow make you completely free from the uh, temptation to sin or free from even the practice of sinning. Instead, likely what you saw that it did is that it illuminated more clearly within you the places where sin is a reality in your life. But here's the thought I want to give, and that's this, that a fall to temptation should be an event, not a lifestyle. That's what we see in the life of Noah versus what God describes in the rest of humanity. God describes humanity, he describes 
all of humanity living in a lifestyle that is dominated in every way by the presence of sin, and yet there's something different about Noah, and we get an account of an event of sin in Noah's life. That should be the reality for a believer. There may be an event where we fall to temptation, a moment where we sin, but it's not a perpetual lifestyle that we carry out. How different would it be in our society, in our culture today, if those who were in the church who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ were not marked by lives of sin, but did have moments of sin. And in our moments of sin, the world outside the church saw us repent, saw us fall before the Lord and confess our sin and commit to walk in a different direction. That's what the life of a follower of Christ should be. That's how the life of a follower of Christ should play out. That a fall to temptation is an event, not a lifestyle. And so the story of Noah goes on. It comes in to very clear focus here for us that God, in his holiness, is just in his judgment of sin. We saw that in the garden with Adam and Eve. We saw it in uh, the account of Cain and Abel. And we see it maybe most clearly up to this point in Scripture here. And he first announces that judgment in verse 7. He says this, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. If we could read in Hebrew, that verse actually foreshadows everything that comes because the word blot out literally means to wash clean. I will wash clean man whom I have created from the face of the earth. It means to erase by washing, washing, like cleaning off a plate. And four times in this section, the word ruin shows up. Now the earth, if you jump down to verse 11, now the earth was literally ruined in God's sight. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was ruined indeed, for all flesh had ruined their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will ruin them with the earth. He will put an end to the process that humanity begun by sin. His plan is to do that with a flood, literally to wash them out. And yet, in the midst of that, we get a picture of God who is merciful and patient, along with being just. He's just in that sin must be paid for and dealt with, and yet he's merciful in that he decides to spare the human race through Noah. He's patient in that, with a single word, without any rain necessary, He could wipe out all of humanity, but he chooses not to. Instead, he gives Noah the instructions for the ark. That's the remainder of chapter 6. He allows Noah time to build it. He delays the rain until he, God, has summoned all the animals to the ark that they might be spared as well. And these parts of the story are what we know best, that Noah builds a really big boat 
that all the animals come into the really big boat and that they float their way to safety. That's the part of the story that we know best. Typically, probably, when you think about it, you think of it in almost cartoon form. Those are the images that conjure up. I, I didn't grow up in church, but those are the images that conjure up in my head, too. Kind of the felt board cartoon images of humanity and Noah being saved in a boat with like a giraffe's head sticking out of one window. That's what we think of. But the reality is that this story is about judgment. It's about the fact that sin can't go unpunished. That God is just and he must act, but he's merciful and patient in the midst of it. And so Noah and his family spend months inside the ark. And as they do, if you flip over to Genesis chapter 7, verse 21, this is what we're told happens outside the ark. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything, on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Maybe more so than ever before, as I read the story of Noah and the flood and the ark, I was struck by the reality that everything died. All of it. That doesn't show up in the cartoon version. But that's what happened. And what you see here in the midst of God's just judgment of humanity's sin is actually a picture of what Jesus will do for humanity on the cross. Noah is what is called a type of Christ. A type of Christ is something that takes place in the Old Testament that imperfectly prefigures what Jesus will do when he arrives on the earth. And so I'm going to put a chart up here. Um, these are the comparisons that exist, the, the places where we see similarities between Noah and Christ, where Noah is imperfectly righteous and blameless, right? He's still a human. He still sins. Jesus is perfectly righteous and blameless. Both Noah and Jesus look foolish in the eyes of the world. No one's ever seen rain before. And there's crazy Noah building a boat because things are going to flood. The Jews expected a powerful king to come, not a baby who would live a life of poverty who would then die on the cross. He seemed foolish. In both instances, there's only one way to be saved. In this case, it's to be on the boat. In our case, it's to come to the cross and to place our faith in Jesus Christ. God seals, he shuts Noah's family inside the boat. You read that in chapter 7. God seals those who come to the cross. You place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It guarantees your eternity in heaven. And then 
maybe one of the most beautiful parts of the story takes place in chapter 9, and that's after they step off the boat in response to seeing God's mercy and saving them. They, Noah and his family, immediately stop and they worship. And the same should be true for us, that upon seeing God's mercy in the slaying of Jesus Christ for our sin, that we would stop and worship. We would give our lives to him. Noah is a type of that. When we read the story of Noah and the flood and God's judgment upon sin, we should be reminded of the fact that God is going to judge sin. And he's just in doing so. But that he has provided the means of salvation for us. He's provided the the way whereby we do not have to face that judgment. I want to end with kind of a devotional thought here, one more. The first was that sin in the life of a believer should be an event, not a lifestyle. The second is this. Noah climbed onto that boat with his family and a full understanding of the fact that no one outside of that boat was going to live. And there arrived a moment as the waters rose and the boat lifted up off the ground where they could undoubtedly hear the screams of those who were perishing outside the boat. Again, not in the cartoon version. But there came a moment where through whatever window may have been available, they were able to look outside and see the reality that judgment had come upon all of the earth in response to humanity's sin, and they had been mercifully saved by the Lord. And they could do nothing to save those who were outside. The reality is this. There will come a moment where all of humanity will face the just judgment for their sin. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, it should be the longing of our heart that there would be as few people as possible left outside of the blood of Jesus Christ to perish apart from the Lord. That should be our cry. Whereas Noah could not pull anyone else into the boat, the life of a believer is different in that we can carry the message of salvation to everyone and in fact are commanded to do so. As I read the story of Noah's life, I couldn't help but think, that I want my life to be a constant picture of extending the love and grace of Jesus Christ into the reality of his judgment of God's judgment upon sin that everyone might climb on to the boat that when we arrive at the moment of judgment that would be a crowded place full of people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and as few as possible would be standing on the outside of that. God is just in his judgment of sin. He's provided the means by which salvation can come, and it's through the righteous work of one single person, Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. If you've not ever placed your faith in that, I want to encourage you this morning to seriously consider it. Because in the same way that I started this message and I said I think the flood was a real thing that happened in the life of real people, I believe that judgment for our sin is going to be a real thing 
That happens in the lives of real people. And just as Noah was a real man that God used to save humanity, so too is Jesus Christ a real man that God has used to save humanity. If you have placed your faith in that, I want to encourage you this morning to cast out the little safety line as far as possible. That everyone would know that salvation is possible thanks to the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to end our time in worship this morning. And we're going to begin, uh, Brian, the first song is Christ Alone, Cornerstone. We're going to begin by singing Christ Alone. He is the only means by which we are saved from the just judgment that God is going to bring to sin. Let's stand and sing.